Hello and welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. We are coming to you from the Banshee in Dorchester, where we have an all-star media panel, an all-star audience, also discussing the results in the recent Boston municipal elections, looking for greater meaning in what at least uh, when it comes to the mayoral race was a pretty... Um, lopsided and predictable result, but I think we can tease out some lessons nonetheless. I'm joined by Peter Kadzis from WGBH, Megan Irons from the Boston Globe, Jennifer Smith from the Dorchester Reporter, and Yawu Miller from the Bay State Banner. Thank you all for being here. So I want to hop right in and ask each of you one discrete question, just to get everyone involved in the conversation at the outset. And then after we've gone down the line, we'll loosen up the conversation a bit and hopefully get audience members to come and ask questions as well or offer observations because we have a lot of uh, knowledgeable people out here. I want to start with you, Megan Irons. When you and I were chatting via email earlier today, you told me that one of the things you learned in this election was that there is no black power base in Boston. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. What I learned from covering this election was that uh, few black people, even black people, even people who are struggling and who use a lot of social services and rely on government for much of their needs, don't often feel empowered to vote. Um, and that's just, I think that was a big problem that Tito Jackson had in reaching his base and connecting with people who might feel that he is their uh, voice into what was happening in the government. I mean, you think about the past, about Mel King and his run in, in 1983 and how the city galvanized around him. When you say the city galvanized around him, my recollection is that the margin by which Ray Flynn beat Mel King is pretty similar to the margin by which Marty Walsh uh, beat Tito Jackson, even though the turnout was much bigger. So what's the structure that, looking back at 83, that you saw in play that is no longer around? Well, people of color and challengers in general have a really hard time getting money. Money is it when you're competing against an incumbent, uh, especially in a situation like this where the incumbent mayor is pretty popular. Um, and folks feel that there's no need to kind of galvanize around a challenger. So if you are a person of color and there are issues that are resonating in the in the, in their community in terms of income inequality, the state of our schools, all of those things, it's really hard to raise money, particularly for in, in, in neighborhoods that are struggling. I want to go to Yawu Miller next because, Megan, you mentioned uh, some turnout numbers. And I know Yawu has been diving into the numbers from this recent election. Based on the analysis that you've done, I'm interested in the, the one or two most interesting things that you've found as you've looked at turnout. I think the, the contrast between 2013 and uh, in this election, 2017, is, is interesting in that in 2013, Walsh won with strong support from the black community as well as from his base in Dorchester, which, you know, working class white folks and really took a drubbing in Back Bay, Beacon Hill, as well as in West Roxbury, you know, and, and it was he kind of it was very close in East Boston. This time around, we've reverted to what we've seen in past election cycles, which is the donut, like a high concentration of support for Jackson 
in the center mass of the city, which is like wards 11 and 12, he won outright. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he, he performed well in ward 14, like coming within a percentage point of Walsh. Mm -hmm. And Jackson also did well in ward 19. He won that in the preliminary and in, in the final, he was about four points behind Walsh. So it was sort of like Jackson had the same coalition of blacks and Latinos and progressive whites that uh, Mel King won in 1983. It sort of, the city kind of reverted back to that um, pattern. You know, all of Jackson's campaign messaging about how difficult the housing situation is in Boston did not resonate in the Back Bay. And you've also pointed out, tell me if I get this wrong, that was Walsh's strongest precinct the precinct where Donald Trump did best in the recent presidential election? Yes, but let me defer to, to Jennifer because she was there. All right, Jennifer, what the hell was going on with that? <laughs> well, uh, point of fact, I was not there, but I did read what our reporter, Maddie Kilgannon, did find from, from that uh, precinct. Uh, but yeah, so we're talking right now about joint precincts uh, coming out of Florian Hall. So you've got a lot of cops, firefighters, generally very strong supporters for Walsh, heavy donators um, in 1612, was it 1612? Uh, yeah, 1612. 1612 um, was so heavy, he cleared about 95% of the vote. Um, Walsh got, I think it was 653 to, uh, to Jackson's 34 votes uh, out of that one precinct. So that was as lopsided a result as you can possibly get, I think. What's your take on why that would have been the case, given that, as we all know, Mayor Walsh has been very vocal in his denunciations of a number of Trump administration policies. What do you think the thought process was, conscious or subconscious, on the part of the voters who loved Trump and loved the mayor as well? So what you'll see, for instance, in Florian Hall is it may have been more inclined to go for Trump based on racial dynamics, based on um, Trump making a lot of appeals to law enforcement, for instance. That makes a little bit more sense there. But for Walsh, it's always been a strong base of support for him. He's generally always counted those demographics, those, uh, those workforces among his base. So even though there was that overlap, Walsh cleared it by 95. Trump did not win that precinct at all. So even though it may have been tapping into some of the same issues, it wasn't a one-to-one. -one. Peter Kadzis, you have looked back at, what, approximately 70 years of mayoral election results. You've spent a lot of time checking out those numbers. And you have discerned, as I understand it, some interesting patterns, right? What are you finding? Yeah, a couple of days before the election, I just started going backwards to 1949, when John Hines was elected, which is really when modern Boston began. I came to the conclusion that from when Hines was elected in 1949 to Kevin White's second victory over Joe Timothy in 1979, that during that 30-year period, you could reduce Boston mayoral politics down to pretty much a single sentence, that it was a, a contest between those voters who were looking ahead and were largely optimistic, and those voters who were looking backwards and were less than optimistic. During this 30-year period, economic inequality in what was still a largely white city was narrowing, and at the same time, 
education achievement was widening. This all held until Ray Flynn's first election. That whole mayoral election was very much about putting busing behind people. By the time Flynn is mayor, things had changed, but no one really realized it. This optimistic bent of the voters during the white years and back to the hind years was really born of two things, the GI Bill and the 1950s post-war economic expansion. After Flynn came in, and it had nothing to do with Ray Flynn, those trends began to dissipate. There were significant reasons for that, I think. Can I just get back? Yeah, Megan, hop on in. And actually, I'd love all of you to hop in and take this wherever you want to go, because we put a bunch of stuff on the table. Megan, OK. I wanted to get back to the, the, the power vacuum. Around Tito Jackson's campaign, you saw just every person of color, black person anyway, that had any sort of authority here in Boston just kind of went to the traditional Irish Catholic candidate. Um, and to me, that signified, well, where is the unity? Where is the black voice in our political structure? Are we really serious about whether or not we want someone at City Hall to represent us beyond just being a city councilor? Where is our voice? And it made me wonder whether or not are we really ready for this? And is the black community, uh, both in the political world, the social world, the economic world, are we ready to stand behind any person of color who's going to, to run for mayor? One thing that I would note as well is uh, it's interesting that there seemed to be uh, a more substantial willingness to embrace candidates of color on the city council, where it was notable that, for instance, two of the three new councilors were black women. But they were both running for open seats. So they didn't have to actually overcome an incumbency advantage there. So it's not that people weren't looking for diverse candidates of color. The question might be whether or not Tito Jackson himself was uniquely able to overcome that incumbency advantage, gather what taste there does seem to be to see that diverse representation and leverage it into a mayoral win. Uh, much has been made of the fact that there are now six women of color on the council. What do you all think that means moving forward for the way the council operates and the way it pushes back against or doesn't push back against uh, Mayor Walsh? I, you know, I'm going to say this anyway, it's going to sound weird, but I do miss Charles Yancey. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> At least when he was on the council, I felt that there was somebody asking hard questions, forcing the administration to get to work, to bring back things, to be accountable to the people who elected him. And I'm hoping that the women who are elected will come in with the sense that they are not just going to simply rubber stamp. This council did not vote against one thing that the mayor uh, That issued. is nuts. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think this council has been traditionally like a, a conservative white male body relative to the population of the city of Boston, right? Like, and so this election has kind of flipped, almost flipped that, right? It will be interesting in the next couple of years to see what kinds of things come before the council and how do those votes break out. We'll be paying attention. I'll, I'll just point out, perhaps cynically, maybe realistically, that all constituent services run through the mayor's office. It's, it's something that no city councilor will soon forget. Jennifer Smith? Yeah, so one thing I was going to say is that 
I would draw a distinction, too, between voting against the mayor on principle versus voting against the mayor because there's an actual disagreement in policy. For instance, when you look at the budget for the city overall, there are a few councillors that have voted, for instance, against parts of the school budget, even though it wasn't enough to sway the entire thing. So one thing I've noticed this week, I've been kind of running around talking to some of the city councillors, and one thing that they've been saying is, not necessarily that Jackson was right in his approaches to it, but that the issues that he raised were relevant. Um, you have things like uh, Councillor Michael Flaherty saying traffic is becoming an active imposition to growth in the city, not just that it's inconvenient, but that you have potential businesses who are choosing not to be in areas with heavy traffic. And so we need to address that. You have Councillor Asibi George who's saying that maybe the answer to the school problem is not to just funnel more money into the school budget, but work on narrowing where we're spending. So it's not necessarily just that they need to be voting against whatever budget the mayor puts forward, but if there's that spirit of hewing away these excesses in the budget and coming to something that they agree with, that might be just as radical a move as straight up refusing it. All right, let's do this lightning round thing that I mentioned. If Hillary Clinton is president as opposed to Donald Trump, What's the margin in this exact same race? Yabu Miller, start with you. <laughs> I, I, I don't see a difference. Jennifer that, Smith? That was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Ditto. Okay, that, that was not as... Boston uh, tends to kind of Boston no matter what. <laughs> as I'd hoped it would be. Okay. Uh, in the wake of the election, in the days following the, uh, the election, there's been a lot of bad news about the future of General Electric, yeah. whose move to Boston was one of the big sort of feathers in the cap of the Walsh administration. If that comes out, say, three months before the election, does it make a difference? I don't think it should, because General Electric was not about bringing jobs into Boston. It was about just bringing a corporate headquarters that's going to you know, do charitable contributions and sort of be a feather in the city's cap, so to speak. And get some property tax breaks. Yeah. There was no deal like, you know, you bring in this number of jobs or we'll claw back your t property taxes, right? Jennifer? And it was still a bit of a philosophical win as well, where it was coming on the heels of the Olympics, it was coming on the heels of IndyCar, even if it hadn't brought quite the margin of success that we'd hoped for or people in general had hoped for, it still would have been something you could point to and say, we got GE to move its headquarters to Boston. Maybe it was hedging around the middle, but that's how it goes. The GE situation in Boston, not for GE itself, is complicated. And GE has several years to make good its promise. On the other hand, in four more years, it could be an issue. Okay, just a couple more. Tito Jackson, is he going to have to make like Sam Yoon and move to Washington, D.C. or some other major urban area, or does he have a future in Boston in politics or somewhere else? I haven't seen that side of Mayor Walsh, like sort of the vindictive, like you're nobody now, like get out of here kind of thing. Um, I would say also that it's not even really clear what Tito Jackson wants to do. It wasn't clear what his backup plan was because to discuss it uh, would have been to kind of concede defeat in the first place. Tito Jackson grew up in Grove Hall. He is Grove Hall. He will be Grove Hall. He's not going anywhere. I could imagine him becoming, say, a spokesman of some sort for the anti-charter school movement or for affordable housing. I mean, he's an articulate and passionate guy, but I don't know what he's going to do. All right, two more, and then we'll get the audience in here, I swear to God. Is there anyone who thought about running against Marty Walsh this year and took a pass who might try it four years from now? 
I think most people that could have posed a viable challenge, and Jim O'Sullivan did a really good rundown in the Globe of who, who could have possibly taken him on, I think everyone looked at it and collectively went, I don't need that L. And then worked for Mayor Walsh. Exactly. <laughs> Is there a consensus at the table? Anyone have a different take? All right, then the uh, final question, the final question for you four, and then we'll bring our audience in. How long does Marty Walsh want to be mayor? I do think he has um, higher ambition, perhaps running for governor when Charlie Baker is uh, out. He does seem to me to be sort of marketing himself nationally. He had a presence at the DNC convention. In a way, I kind of see him kind of looking at the bigger picture. Kind of feels like he wants to see himself on a national stage. He actually praised the mayor, right, for his handling of that white supremacist oh, yeah. slash he free speech. He also trail. said, Marty Walsh, I don't know who that is, but he's terrible. <laughs> so Wasn't that before, though? It was, yes, yeah. but he changes his mind a lot. He <laughs> um, the thing that's really stuck with me this week is I was talking to Ayanna Presley, and the way she put it was the silos of government have broken down. It's no longer enough to just have a conversation on the city level, on the state level, on the federal level to be an effective mayor of Boston, maybe sometimes that means taking on those national fronts. Um, and I think that it makes it a little bit harder to parse out broader ambitions when you're the mayor of Boston, you need to talk about immigrants if that's where the national conversation is going. On election night, the night Marty Walsh was elected, I said on the air that I thought he would be a prospective candidate for governor. Now, having said that, he's crazy to do it, because as mayor, he has much more power, and the state's um, tax base is shrinking, and the city's tax base is growing. However, if we want to see whether he does run or not, take a look at how he handles the negotiations over the, the next teacher's contract. Because if he goes soft, that to me would say he's going to run for governor. If he's somewhat tough, that would mean he'd want to stay as mayor of Boston. Because no Democrat in their right mind wants the teachers statewide against him. All right, now I want to get some audience members asking questions. Do I like introduce myself? Sure. <laughs> Hi, my name is Grace Hawley. Um, I work in affordable housing in Boston. So my questions kind of touch on that. So I think all of you sort of agreed that um, those who voted for Mayor Walsh or were kind of in his camp saw the glass of Boston half full or that things were at least kind of stepping in the right direction in a lot of areas. I personally think like a lot of that had to do with sort of a positive narrative that 40% of all new housing construction is affordable and that rents had gone down 4% around the city, which it turns out when the numbers came out from DND, you know, just is completely false. What's the media's responsibility in digging into these numbers and kind of making sure that what these candidates put out is actually factual? One of the challenges is that there were different statistics coming out from different city departments and people just sort of citing statistics like willy-nilly, and it creates a kind of noise. Some media did a good job, probably some media didn't, um, but when you have so many different sources and so much, so much conflicting information coming out there, like from one like week to the next, things can get muddled. I mean, I, I noticed that the city said that um, this percentage of affordable housing was um, created or preserved. And the or preserved part means like, no, we didn't actually build it. We just made sure that it stayed affordable. 
And there were like a lot of little nuances there that were sort of getting lost in translation with the media. It tells a very different story than what's actually been happening. I, I do think sometimes there is a reluctance on the part of the press, and I'm not exempting myself from this at all, there's a reluctance to hop in and, and do more than just say candidate A claims this and candidate B claims that. Sometimes we feel like we've done our job if we quote or paraphrase the respective campaign's cases as opposed to trying to size them up and, and saying, and it turns out candidate A is right and candidate B is wrong. Sometimes I think we're slower to do that when the data are tricky as they can be when it comes to housing. It's definitely an issue I was interested in and I did not find a way to do a piece saying our Mayor Walsh's claims about rent reductions, uh, do they pass the smell test or not? In retrospect, I think the, the institutional we would have provided a much better service if we had made the two candidates define their terms very clearly. You know, in other words, instead of talking about low-income housing, saying housing for people who this or rent levels. And I mean, that's, that was my personal takeaway to do a better turn. But I'm going to pass this on to someone else. Yeah, now. Do you have any other audience members out there eager to throw a question at our panelists? It's actually in relation to what was discussed today. So we talked about Charles Yancey. He was kind of the stickler, you know, oversight. Who's going to do that now? Who's going to be the next Charles Yancey, Tito Jackson stickler in the council to kind of play that oversight role? I think what you're going to see is more issue-specific pushback, for instance. Like, uh, Yancey was very good about kind of being that all-purpose point against the administration if he thought they were overreaching, um, obviously really went after body cameras, and now Andrea Campbell's taken that up. The idea is... Not just that you're that kind of really vocal voice on the council, but that you pick your battles and make sure that when you're doing that, you're building a coalition around it because the best protection against the whims of a mayor is legislative. I was particularly peeved when on um, a signature gathering day, the first day of it, the councillors were tweeting, Team Walsh, what does it say to the public? Okay, what we don't want is just these counselors just collecting a big fat check from our taxpayers and not advocating on our behalf. And also just with the idea, uh, as Megan brought up, of um, electing counselors to advocate for the interests of their constituents, it's a little tricky sometimes when you have uh, a lot of counselors taking as a mandate something that came out of 27% of the electorate. How do you interpret that? How do you kind of interpret is your constituency mostly fine, or do you advocate for advocate for the most vocal, most in need elements of your constituency? And so how they find that balance is, I think, really critical for these most recent two terms of, of counselors. Let's get one more audience question, if there are any more out there, and then we'll, uh, we'll repair to, I guess, our tables for private Q&As, private chit-chat. <laughs> Who do we have? Um, I'm curious what you folks think about the juxtaposition between old Boston versus new Boston. And I'm thinking in particular about the way that the no Boston Olympics campaign really mobilized. I kind of felt like it was left by the wayside. 
in this cycle. I think both things were happening at the same time. Like, like in District 1, that's definitely New Boston, right? Like Lydia Edwards, um, the first black woman, the first person who's not an Italian-American man to represent the North End in Charlestown and East Boston. Um, those neighborhoods have changed, particularly uh, East Boston. But at the same time, like you look at the Walsh campaign and old Boston really sort of came roaring back with um, Walsh kind of taking up, what, again, what people call the donut, which is um, all the peripheral neighborhoods of West Roxbury, South Boston and Charlestown. I was going to make the same point. Um, Ed Flynn in District 2 had the support of his father, Raymond Flynn. Mike Flaherty and all the uh, Southie establishment. Mike Kelly had so much promise when he launched his campaign, but he was never able to galvanize the new Boston behind him. And Ray Flynn represented old Boston and new Boston in that, you know, he sort of once in office became a little bit more of the new Boston and promoted people of color into really important positions in his administration. So, you know, I think, but... Yeah, go ahead. What you're seeing, I think, is the manifestation of a lot of different kinds of progressivism, a lot of different kinds of advocacy, uh, which are appealing to different areas of the city. So it may, in effect, look like one slightly more progressive or one slightly less progressive uh, did actually end up getting elected. But I don't know if old Boston was really firmly on the ballot this year, which was an interesting thing in general. Peter Kansas, I think you get the last word. The trend to me that was most important in the city has less to do with race and ethnicity and more to do with gender. I was very, very impressed. I mean, like almost physically impressed by the Women's March in Boston. One, I was wildly impressed that my wife, who has never been to a political demonstration in her life, and two of her girlfriends went to Washington, D.C. I think that women emerging as a force in Boston politics may be the biggest takeaway. That is where we are going to leave it tonight. I want to thank the panelists, Peter Kadzis, Yawu Miller of the Bay State Banner, Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter, and Megan Irons of the Boston Globe. Thank you all for taking part in this. I also want to thank all the audience members who turned out and uh, asked questions in some cases. And I want to say a big thank you to Mike Dean, who has put on a few of these. Big round of applause. He is Peter and I's WGBH News colleague, WGBH News' Statehouse correspondent. Um, Mike pretty much made this entire thing happen. So Mike, thanks a lot for doing that. And as always, thanks to people who've taken the time to listen. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to The Scrum on Apple Podcasts or get it at various podcast apps. You can also find back episodes online at blogs.wgbhnews.org slash scrum. When you are listening to this online or via whatever, uh, I guess, delivery service, it's because we're getting huge production help from Doug Sugarts. He makes it sound good. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.